Well, last time we looked at the God-centeredness of God. God, with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength, loves God. Pastor John, you said this back in 1992, and quote, God delights in his glory. He rejoices in his magnificence. He is not an idolater. He always has himself at the center of his infinitely worshiping heart. End quote. That is so good. That was in APJ 1901 in a sermon clip I shared last time on, on Wednesday. The God-centeredness of God provides the foundation for us to understand why our salvation hinges on the life and work and blood of Jesus Christ. It's essential. But on the flip side of this, this God-centeredness of God is one reason why many others reject Christ. They simply cannot stomach the idea of a jealous God. Well, he is jealous, so jealous. His name is Jealous, capital J, Jealous, we see in Scripture. God reserves for himself the right to our exclusive worship. Uh, For believers, that's the greatest calling in the universe, but for others, this is sheer folly, Pastor John, and that includes Oprah Winfrey, one prominent rejecter of God's jealousy. For many people, divine jealousy seems defective, it seems immature. How can a great and all-sufficient God be jealous? Doesn't this make it sound like he's an insecure tyrant complaining about losing his grip on his lover? So, Pastor John, I I know you've been giving this theme some fresh thought lately. Help us understand what the Bible means by God's jealousy and, and why should this truth bring us into worship rather than repel us away from God? You mentioned Oprah Winfrey. It might be helpful to start there. You can go to YouTube and listen to her explain why she left traditional Christianity. Hmm. She described being in a church service where the preacher was talking about the attributes of God, his omnipotence, omnipresence, and here's what she said. I wrote it down. Then he said, the Lord thy God is a jealous God. I was caught up in the rapture of the moment until he said, jealous, and something struck me. I was 27 or 28, and I was thinking, God is all. God is omnipresent. God is also jealous. A jealous God? Jealous of me? And something about that didn't feel right Hmm. in my spirit because I believe that God is love and that God is in all things. Close quote. Now, why did she stumble over the jealousy of God? She doesn't say exactly why. But many have said that they are uncomfortable with the idea that God demands our affections, our allegiance, our love, and if we don't give them, he's going to punish us because he's jealous. They don't like the idea of God commanding that our hearts belong to him and being angry if we give our hearts to another. Now, it's true. It's just plain, straight up, on the face of it, true that God commands our affections, that they be entirely His. Jesus said that the first and great commandment is to 
love the Lord your God. You shall, this is a command, love the Lord your God with all your heart. Matthew twenty-two, thirty-seven. All of it, all of it, with all your heart, God demands that we love him. Don't give any of your affections that belong to God to anyone else, he's saying. Or the way the Old Testament put it was in Exodus 34, 14. You shall worship, that is, treasure, reverence, admire, esteem, praise, love, delight in. You shall worship no other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. In other words, God demands that that you and I and Oprah Winfrey give him all our worship, all our allegiance, Mm. all our affection. Nothing is to be loved more. Jesus said, whoever loves mother or father or daughter or, or son more than me, is not worthy of me, Matthew ten thirty seven. So he, he Jesus is demanding all of our supreme affections and allegiance for Himself. If we give any of our worship to another, God is jealous because it belongs to Him. And if we don't repent, He will break forth in wrath. Hmm. Deuteronomy four twenty four. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire a jealous God. Now, why do sinners, that's all of us, unless the Lord breaks our hearts and causes us to be born again, why do sinners bristle at this? People don't want to be told where to find their greatest pleasure. We we want to be autonomous self-determining people. We want to decide for ourselves, like Adam and Eve, before the tree. We want to decide for ourselves what is good and evil, beautiful and ugly, satisfying and unsatisfying. And our sinful hearts recoil at the thought that anyone, including God, would demand that we find our satisfaction in Him. Sin does not like that for at least two reasons. One, we don't like being told what to do, period. And the second is, sin does not find its greatest pleasure in God. So we don't want to be told what to do, and we certainly can't be told to find our greatest pleasure in God because we don't have our greatest pleasure in God. That's the very meaning of sin. And so the way we justify our resistance, both to God's authority and to our finding all satisfaction in him, the way we justify that is by finding fault with his jealousy. But but suppose, here's my alternative view that that I hope people can embrace by God's grace. Suppose that God does have a right to tell us what to do because he made us, he owns us. And he's the only person in the universe who knows everything and is infinitely wise and infinitely good and knows what's best for us. And suppose he is the greatest good in the universe, and he is the greatest joy, and he is the all-satisfying pleasure. Suppose we are utterly and totally dependent on him for our greatest and most lasting happiness 
and suppose all that's true, which it is, then how would we think about God's jealousy? Maybe, maybe we would think biblically like this. God looked at fallen, sinful, rebellious humanity and in his immeasurable grace decided to call out a people for his own possession. And the way he would relate to these people is as a loving husband to a beautiful wife. She would find her joy in his greatness and wisdom and strength and love and care, protection, and he would rejoice over her and protect her and provide everything for her that she needs to find her fullest joy in his presence. So that's what he did. That's what God did. In the Old Testament, it's described like this in Hosea 2. I will betroth you to me forever. This is God talking to his people. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you will know the Lord. Here it is again in Isaiah 62, 4. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, My delight is in her and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. And then in the New Testament, the church, God's people, God's chosen people, his own special possession is described as Christ's bride, his wife. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In other words, Christ aims to have a beautiful wife, and he died for this. And Paul himself, he he thought of his apostolic ministry as kind of an apostolic cupid, (laughs) <laughs> so so to speak, bringing people into this relationship with Jesus. I mean, isn't that what he said in Second uh, Corinthians 11, 2? I feel the jealousy of God for you since I betrothed you to the one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. That's Cupid. That's <laughs> glorious, divine, apostolic work. <laughs> What happens then if the church, the bride, starts drifting into a love affair with the world? What happens? And here's the way James describes that happening in uh, James chapter 4, verse 4 and 5. You adulteresses! Now, that's very significant because the, not all the translations get the fact that it's a feminine word. It's not adulterers. It's not adulterous generation. It is adulteresses because it's treating the church as the wife of God. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world, in other words, a love affair, a paramour affair with the world, is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend, a lover, a paramour of the world, 
makes himself an enemy of God. He turns God into a cuckold. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us. So here's the bottom line. The jealousy of God is the measure of His zeal for our happiness in Him. His anger at our spiritual adultery, at our having other lovers besides Him, is a reflex both of his zeal for his own worth, but also a reflex of his zeal for our joy. If we turn away from him as the greatest treasure, we turn away from our own greatest pleasure. In Jesus Christ, God offers himself to all, to all, as a great Savior, a great treasure, an all-satisfying pleasure. Psalm 1611, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And his jealousy is a massive emotional thunderclap that says, I mean it. I mean it. I'm your Savior. I'm your treasure. I'm your pleasure. I really mean it. Don't turn away. Yeah, amen. An apostolic Cupid, <laughs> that's a humorous way to put it, but actually a great phrase because as I was I was just scanning the APJ archive right now as you were talking, and I think the only time we've talked at length about God's jealousy was back when we addressed good jealousy and bad jealousy in the dating relationship about back in 2018 in APJ 1177. Uh, fitting subtopic here on jealousy and dating if you want more. And if you, even if you're not dating, you'll learn a lot about God from that episode, ABJ 1177. And speaking of Oprah, we looked at her interpretation of Psalm 37.4 back in ABJ 810. That comes to mind as well. It's also worth a listen. You can find ABJ 1177 on dating jealousy and ABJ 810 on Oprah's interpretation of Psalm 37.4. Both of them are in our archive at askpastorjohn.com. Well, God magnifies himself by our worship. But did God magnify himself in our lives before we got saved? The Apostle Paul, speaking of his pre-conversion life, says yes in 1 Timothy 1.16. God was manifesting his patience in Paul's pre-conversion life. Okay. So should we learn to speak of how God was magnifying himself in our lives before we got saved, too? Uh, Because, well, I've never done that, and I'll bet many of you who are listening have never done that either. It's an email up next. It's a great one, man. You, You guys come up with some really fascinating questions for us, and together we will ask Pastor John on Monday. Have a great weekend. We'll see you then.